very delighted to see the statue of Prajnaparamita here, the transcendent mother of all Buddhas. That's a, a rare sight. I have come to speak to you tonight and hopefully practice with you tomorrow on a, a topic that is somewhat tricky. It's not an easy topic. It's not a popular topic. Popular topics in Buddhism are compassion, loving kindness, wisdom, insight, clear light of bliss, this sort of thing. Um, I've always been a problem type in my practice and approach to Buddhism. So I, I teach about distortions and hindrances and clinging, selfing, sort of thing. So. I think that comes from a deep appreciation in the, you know, the psychological ingenuity I, I perceive in Buddhist teaching. Uh, and I believe we have only just started to make use of these teachings, to be honest with you. It's, it looks like Buddhism has landed in the West, but um, I think we're just skimming the surface, to be honest. I have a feeling we're... Uh, there's so much more. The quarry is so much more rich than what we have understood that what we have picked up and I hope um, I'll see more deepening and uh, I'll probably won't really see that the teachings completely arrive in the West. One of the key terms in the Buddha's understanding of what creates suffering in our lives is a, uh, a psychological act he calls upadana. And this is what we commonly translate with attachment, with uh, grasping, and sometimes with identification. Let me tell you something about this term, because the best translation cannot really do justice to that term. It has, when we look at the word, the etymology is easy enough. Dana means giving, Adana means taking, Upadana means a reinforced form of taking. Yeah? So it's getting hold of and holding on to. The term has a history, uh, a pre-Buddhist history. The Vedic tradition, particularly in the Brahminical tradition, uh, that was prevalent in the Buddhist day, the term Upadana meant the gathering of fuel for the sacrificial fires. Yeah? Fire worshippers the maintenance of the fires as a sacrificial ritual to honor the god Agni, the god of fire, was a common practice. And some ascetics in the Buddha's day made it, in fact, um, their religious duty to keep fires burning all the time. And the gathering and the refueling of those sacrificial fires in Brahminical terminology was called Upadana. So in the pre-Buddhist notion, this was the fueling of the holy fires. Like in so many other cases, the Buddha has not invented much. His ingenuity consists of finding things and then turning them around. So in his understanding, fueling the fires, uh, he's turned the notion of fire on on its head. In this 
Buddhist understanding, the fire are the fires of greed, of hatred, and of delusion. And one meaning of the term upadana is the fueling of the fires of greed, hatred, and delusion. So the notion of upadana has a double meaning. On one hand, it means attachment. On the other hand, it means fuel. There is no English word or French or German word that would do justice to this double meaning. But take for a moment the image of a piece of wood, a burning piece of wood. The fire consumes the wood. More precisely, the physicists in my view, it's the wood gas, actually. this combust by producing a, a gas that comes out of the wood, and that gas is the bit which is burning. But if we hold that flaming piece of wood here in one hand, and we blow into that. We see that the flame on one hand lifts off the piece of wood, on the other hand it clings to its fuel. If we blow into it, we will see it is as if the flame sticks to the, to the piece of foot, fuel it burns on. So maybe this image of a piece of wood that is burning gives us a connection between that double meaning being fueled by something and also clinging to something. The Buddha says in a little-known passage somewhere buried in the group sayings that um, as the fire relates to its fuel, a sustenance, in such a way the relationship is between upadana and what he called renewed becoming. Renewed becoming sometimes is translated as rebirth, meaning this is something that doesn't concern me right now, which only happens after my death, but that's not how the Buddha meant it. He understood renewed becoming to be something that happens all the time. That it continues after the death of the physical body is another matter. His primary meaning of that was that we are engaged in a continual process of becoming, and that which renews the process of becoming is upadana, that is the fuel of our continual re-becoming. Right now I'm sitting here, I've become a Buddhist meditation teacher. Uh, In two hours or so I'll be probably walking out of that door, I may be reborn on the toilet for a short moment, and then in the elevator, and then later back, hotel. Get continually reborn in forms in different state, in different modes, in different roles, in different functions. So this is the deeper meaning of the notion, renewed becoming. And such becoming hinges on me engaging with my sensory world. Now the sensory world is an interesting thing. On one level it feels this is as real as it gets. I touch something and before I have an opinion about it, before I have a perception about it, I have a form of contact. This is about as real as it gets. On the other hand, sensory experience can be quite treacherous. We all know sunsets. We look look at the sun and we see the sun going down. I don't don't know New York, so I don't know where you go for sunsets here. Maybe over the Hudson? Probably, yeah. This must be the west side. So... You see that sun going down and it really feels as if you're standing there statically and as if the sun is going down. Now we all know this is not the case. We all know the sun is not going down. We all know it is the earth that's turning around its axis. We know it's turning one degree in four minutes. 
we all have learned that, we've, we've had it demonstrated to us, the proof is delivered for a long time, and yet when we stand there and the sun goes down, it really feels as if I am standing still and the sun is going down. It's totally counterintuitive at that moment and seems to speak against my sensorial reality that the sun is actually static and it is me that is turning away. One degree in four minutes. So, senses are strange things. One of the strange things is by, by this treacherous logic is that we have a tendency to believe because we become aware of things that there is something in here that is the experiencer of what we become aware of. This is very simple. Something pops up in my mind and I think, oh, this is a nice thought. Yeah. Thought does its number. I think, oh, this is my thought, you know, because it happens to me, isn't it? Yeah. So suddenly there's a little switch and I become the guy who has the thought. Yeah. Nice thought goes and the nice guy stays behind. This process, Buddhist psychology calls identification. There's an, an aspect of sensory experience. Remember, Buddhist psychology assumes that the things that happen in my mind are sense experiences. It's not just what I taste, or see, or hear, or touch, or smell. It's also what I can think of, what I can imagine. Well, this is also part of sense experience. So, if I identify with an aspect of my sense experience, something as harmless as a thought. If I establish ownership with that, I engage in a relationship that creates a notion of self, a notion of ownership, an act of appropriation which makes me the experiencer of what happens in my senses, in my mind. And as you know, many of those things happen in rapid succession. So the nice thought is followed by a nasty thought. And while being a nice guy may seem a very pretty option, being a nasty guy, just because I have a nasty thought, may look like a less pretty option. Very soon also I may have trouble because there may be another guy who has, while I have identified with a smart <laughs> thought in my head, may turn out to have an even smarter thought. So while I have to feel chuffed by having a smart little self, I suddenly have to live with the fact that there is another guy over there that has an even smarter self than I am one. You know? We may have to compete about their smart selves. But these selves are a tricky position to be in. They're very frail. They need an awful lot of maintenance. You know? They don't last very long. Even if we get the good bit, you know, they don't last very long. So they need constantly propping up. They need a lot of input. Selves are very, very frail and wobbly things. That's one of the problems with things that don't really exist, you see. The problem with the self is it doesn't seriously exist. It can only be cooked up at short distances um, with the help of a lot of maintenance and propping up and identification. So I need to keep having to re-identify the self with something that seems juicy enough that I can feel good about it. And I have to do a lot of this. Generally, I don't get through a day with, uh, you know, one of them is not enough. You need half-hour segments. You can get it down to half-hour segments. Right now, I'm a Dhamma teacher, but God knows who am I later on. So, that act of self, that act of creating 
an identity with a content of my experience is one aspect of upadana. It is um, for the mental identification with things or for the mental grasping at something that happens in my mind, it is probably best to translate this activity with identification. Many things I grasp at on a heart level. When they feel nice, I would like to keep them. When they feel safe and secure, I would like to maintain them. So, on the level of the heart, uh, it's probably best to speak of grasping or of attachment or of clinging for the activity of mind that tries to create some degree of permanence within a world that is, you know, ephemeral. It's not that it doesn't exist. It's not an illusion. That's a very important point. The Buddha didn't say things are illusory. He said they are changing. Dukkha, you know, suffering, pain, happiness, responsibility, these things are changing, but they are happening. It's not that they are unreal. It's just that they are not in the way real we misconstrue them often. And we misconstrue them through an act of grasping, of clinging, and of identification. So, in Buddhist teaching, this is one of the prime forces that creates suffering. It's not that the world has pretty things that we like to have or enjoy or inhabit, uh, or it's not that we have senses that are delicate and receptive. This is not the problem. It's not even the problem that we have desire, because as long as we don't act on this desire, the only disadvantage we have of desire is the fact that we have an unspilled tension. The problem sets in when we decide to act on this desire, uh, to act on what the Buddhist teachings call thirst. So in the sequence of dependent arising, you have the term upadana uh, after desire. It is upadana, that is the decision that we act on a particular impulse of desire and that we'd like to follow through on this. So Upadana has a key role in the path and dependent arising. Then <clears throat> Upadana turns up in the teaching of the Kandas, the five aspects of our experience. In fact, in the first sermon, the Buddhas uh, abbreviated statement of what constitutes suffering in human experiences. Um, it's very simple. It says um, old age, sickness and death is suffering. Um, not getting what one wants is suffering. Being with things and people one doesn't like is suffering. Being separated from people one loves is suffering. In short, all grasping within the five aspects of our experience, within everything that is formed, within everything that has to do with feeling tone, with pleasure, within everything that has to do with perception, within everything that has to do with um, will formations, and with everything that has to do with sense consciousness. So any grasping in that as in, that, in those five realms, which basically constitute all of your experiences. Any grasping in that is going to be painful. If you look at what distinguishes a being that is completely freed, that is awakened, then you'll see that 
Such a being still experiences the five aspects of experience. An arahat is not a kind of three-cylinder uh, being. It's still working with all five of the khandhas. The aspects of experience haven't fallen away. What has fallen away is the grasping within these aspects of experience. Awakened being still experiences joy, still experiences pleasure, still experiences perception, still experiences uh, impulses, still experiences sense consciousness. It's not some kind of rarefied meditation mummy that has kind of <laughs> growing moss out of his or her ears from long hours of sitting. It's a, it's a fully functional human being. But the grasping, the upadana has fallen away within those five aspects of experience. There's a very interesting teaching that specifies these forms of grasping a little more psychologically. Uh, there's a couple of places in the teachings uh, the Buddha speaks of four specific forms of grasping, or four specific realms in which grasping happens. And um, he outlines the four, these four realms. And the first realm is, this is not a big surprise, the first realm is the, the realm of the senses. It's, he calls this type of upadana, kama, kama upadana, you know, with a long A. Kama means both sense enjoyment, it means sense object, and it means the pull these sense objects have for us. It's a strange thing, isn't it, to have one little term for three apparently different things. Sense object, the enjoyment of sense objects, and the pull such an enjoyment in the experience of sense objects has on us. It's not difficult to see why there is one word, or one word seems to be enough for this, because um, practical experience teaches us very clearly that the things we enjoy, we become more refined in. And when we enjoy them, we not just deepen our enjoyment through refinement, we also deepen our, the potential for suffering. Everything you have refined yourself in, everything you have become really sophisticated in, bears inevitably the potential for suffering, insult, and pain. If you've become a very rarefied tea drinker, then anybody who's just giving you a shoddy tea bag and holds it under the hot water tap and hands it over to you with a big smile and maybe three dollops of sugar, will gonna insult you. There are many forms of suffering that can be a lot more crude than this little example. But I think it is obvious that the more we rarefy our tastes, the more we become subtle in our enjoyments of sensory things, the more likely it is that we will be uh, in pain at some stage. Because we can't maintain the level of sophistication or because uh, we... Uh, we grow too old to enjoy it, or we, uh, it is taken away from us. Every refinement makes us more prone to forms of suffering. Not just that we suffer because it may be uh, 
taken away or we may get used to it, we may need to heighten the dosage. Uh, also, as soon as, that, as soon as the gratification is kicked in, we deepen a pattern of expectation. We deepen uh, maybe a dependency. After the gratification wears off, we're left with a kind of negative tension that look, makes us look forward or that makes us long to an, uh, uh, a subsequent hit or a subsequent uh, uh, even more refined experience. This is not immediately apparent because when it feels good, why should it be bad? You know, it's counterintuitive that things that feel good should in some way be bad for us. And yet we all know this is the case, isn't it? Very obviously the case. Many things feel very good and they are not really good for us in the long term. There are correlations between my sugar consumption and my dental bills, for example. It's not immediately apparent when it tastes sweet that it costs much and hurts later on. This is not apparent. You could say the nowness of experiences. Now it is sweet, yeah? And this has nothing to do with the pain I have to see when I see the bill, or uh, the pain I have at the dentist. We could claim that there is no causal connection, because the now here that tastes sweet and the now here that tastes bitter have apparently no connection. There are such teachings about a now that doesn't allow for causal connections. This is not the teaching of the Buddha. The Buddha says there are causal connections. Some things you cannot explain with simple moment-by-moment nowness. Some things last in time. You You create conditions and conditions bear fruit. Some of those fruits are immediate. You move your foot and your blood flows again. The result of your action is immediate. But some of the things uh, go dormant for a long time before they sprout. Some seeds take a while to sprout. So not everything is, that is causally connected is immediately apparent in its result. So karma is the most healthy form of grasping. It is, if everything has gone well with your socialization and your upbringing, you have a, um, a healthy relationship to sensuality. You know that you can enjoy, you know how to create enjoyment for yourself, you don't feel guilty about enjoyment. Um, you have the confidence that you have the means and the capacity to create enjoyment for yourself. If all has gone well psychologically in your life, then this is how it has happened. You were lucky enough that people helped you to find gratification and they were even pleased to gratify your needs. You know? If it's gone a little less good, they may have helped to gratify what you needed and then they made you feel bad. Maybe they've given you bad feelings. They do things for you, but then they let you know it costs them much or that you're a botherer. Even on that score, we're not always very happy. But even if you get it precisely right, even if you have a very healthy relationship to sensuality, sensuality is still going to be a drag. It's still not going to make you happy. And you can still get very, very hooked in there. The Buddha thinks that our deepest form of grasping is our attachments to body, to safety, to enjoyment, to comfort. This is not difficult to understand why. We deep down know 
that things are not safe. We deep down know that things go, can go dreadfully wrong. We deep down know it's not going to last forever. And we know quite well that we don't really have control. over so many things on which our happiness depends, we don't have control. And what is our reaction to that? Our reaction to that is frantic. Our reaction to that is to create safety by psychological tricks. One such psychological trick is called a self. A self is a conveniently, vaguely defined entity that can be maintained with little moments of identification here and there. I can snatch a moment of identification here and a moment there and a moment there. And by that I tied myself over. You know, an hour, a day, a month, ten years. So I create some form of stability and a small little platform, a raft in the midst of a sea of change I create by the help of a conveniently vaguely defined notion of self. That's what gets me through that change, that's what gets me through the uncertainty in there lurking in all change and basically the existential knowing that at some day this, earl, this world is going to disappear from under my senses, it's going to blacken under my senses. So the Buddha says very clearly our attachment to sensory gratification, to enjoyment, to safety, to comfort, to stability and security is some of our most profound attachment. Um, He has quite stark things to say. Uh, He didn't really foresee that he was being perceived from a point of view of wellness and lifestyle as some of us uh, in the 20th and 21st century have taken a habit to perceive the Buddhist teaching as. Uh, he had a few stark things to say about the danger of sense pleasures. We'll need a little more breath maybe tomorrow to investigate that. The next area of attachment and grasping and identification he felt was a domain that he referred to as Ditti Upadana. This is the second big area in which we invest. If the first big area can be labeled uh, seeking gratification, seeking pleasure, you know, at the good end of the spectrum and uh, falling into addiction at the bad end of the spectrum, then the second domain of grasping it ditties uh, is that we seek identification with forms of knowledge and the confidence that we know better, that we know something that is of superior value. So a ditty is a view, it's an opinion, it's an ideology, it's a belief. It is something formed, it is something that has a definitely cognitive note, and some of these views and opinions and ideologies are conscious and are declared We have arrived at maybe after long reflection, we have maybe discussed, we have pondered, and some of these ditties are not formed very clearly in our minds. Some of these ditties are not the result of reflection or profound inference or something. Some of these ditties we hold are the product of our subculture, our particular family history. We don't even know it's there, and yet it's there. 
we get to know that it's there when we meet people who don't share our particular deity. (laughs) Then we generally get, in ways that can only be called irrational, we get upset. We think these guys are just weird. They shouldn't be allowed to be that way. We wish that they'd be locked up somehow or, or taken away from us. We are disturbed that there are people who, with the self-assured normalcy in which we think about ourselves, do something totally different and feel precisely as normal as we feel. Travel is a great one for this. If you want to find out about your ditties, go and travel. Meet other people. Go and live with people who do not share your unquestionable uh, values and perceptions that have been uh, imbued into you from, from very early days. So one of the sources for Ditti is obviously that we have opinions about everything because opinions make us feel safe. See? Our prime concern is not ecstasy. Our prime concern is not um, perpetual sensory bliss. Our prime concern is security. Our prime concern is safety. And there's many ways we can find safety. Some of us find safety through intensity. Yeah? Some of us find safety through knowing things. Yeah? I can't help it. It's going to go wrong anyway, but at least I know why. Yeah? We derive some kind of comfort from knowing about things. We know what's gone wrong. Yeah? We believe that because we know that, this won't happen to us. You know, I could see she wasn't really doing that very properly. I never had a good feeling how she went about this, and look what happened, you know? So, the implicit statement is, ah, thank God, I know what she did wrong, because I know what she did wrong, this won't happen to me. Obviously, a couple of things still happen to us. We still die, we still get sick, we still lose our loved ones, we still, you know don't get the job we wanted. We still get the job we want and find out that we're still not happy. There's a couple of things that go wrong with us. We deep down notice. So one of the issues we have is creating safety. So ditties and views and opinions are something that do create safety. They give me the sense that I have a superior quality of understanding that helps me to keep the wolf from the door or that helps me to uh, cross the difficult terrain uh, uh, and get away unscathed. Traditionally, ditties, Buddhist commentaries are very... Um, they're, they're not telling us the whole story, actually. That's my... Um, <coughs> in the teaching, there are, a ditty is generally a, a wrong view. So that there, are, there are views the Buddha feels are particularly unhelpful. One such view is the negation of conditionality. One such example of today would be something like shit happens. Yeah? Things just happen. Yeah? <laughs> Things just go wrong. Yeah? Yeah? Well, as a psychological attitude of forgiveness and liberal-mindedness, I can, I can say, yes, this is true. Yeah. Um, this is wonderful if you can forgive somebody with that statement. As a, as a Buddhist practitioner, actually, who uh, tries to follow a teaching that is quite insistent that things happen according to causes and conditions, I think this is a total no-go. Shit happens basically says, 
nobody takes responsibility. We're not going to investigate what happened. We're not going to investigate what we wanted, what we did, what went wrong. So, one of the things that helps with DT is that we are willing to investigate, that we are willing to ask questions, that we're willing to actually fathom things to the ground. And if we want to do that, there are a couple of things that are very, very bad if we adopt them as views. One of them is that there are no causes for there is no such thing as conditionality, or it doesn't matter. I can't help it anyway. Such beliefs curtail our attempts to understand things. They actually curtail our attempts to even investigate things properly. So the Buddha felt that such habits, such views are unhelpful. The Buddha was clear that human beings are capable of discerning what is wholesome and what is unwholesome. Like Jesus and like Socrates, he was convinced that human beings have an intrinsic sensitivity which enables them to understand what is becoming and what is not becoming, what is wholesome, what is unwholesome. But this sensitivity he felt was important. So he uh, had some clear, clear things to say about an ethical causality, that when things move from causes to conditions, it's useful to find out... What is the good stuff? What is useful? What is wholesome? What makes happy? What makes free? What makes the mind more clear? And he said, you need to find out. Not just generally and universally, but you personally need to find out what helps you. <coughs> and this investigation uh, is based on uh, attention. It's based on curiosity. It's based on some methodical way of staying with something. And it's based on the capacity to make ethical choices. And to deny human beings the capacity to make ethical choices is a very unhelpful view to adopt. So he felt, uh, this is a bad view. There are a couple of other views we felt were unhelpful. Many of them have to do with beliefs people of his time have held. They were a bunch of guys who were materialists, uh, one of them particularly had the theory of elements and he said it doesn't really matter if you kill people because if you put a knife through somebody you know that the element that the elements that this person consists of will stay intact yeah? Yeah. that you put a blade in there doesn't really change the elements very much earth is earth, fire is fire, water is water, air is air so you don't really do anything to the elements so putting, putting a knife through people doesn't really have any big consequences this is the sort of view the Buddha felt was very pernicious. And he has, uh, on several accounts, <coughs> spoken against it. Um, he also felt one of the views that was unhelpful was to believe that there are no people of realization. In other words, that there is no possibility for liberating the heart. And that there are no people who have degrees of liberation. Just to deny this possibility, he felt was very disheartening. Unfortunately, there is not just danger from so-called wrong views that uh, when we attach to them that have negative consequences. Even right views when we attach to them have unhelpful consequences. Think of how we would think about views nowadays. We'd have 
forms of understanding that they're not, even if though they even though they may be correct, the way we hold this understanding may make it something very unwholesome. Usually, we attach to views when things have been successful in our lives, when we have received help, a meditation technique, a particular diet, a teacher, a mode of exercise. Yeah. We get attached to this and we start holding identified forms of this view uh, when this has been useful to us. We want to share what's good for us. That's normal. That's a very healthy impulse. Problem is, is when we feel this has not just helped us. In fact, this would help everybody if they only understood. Yeah? <laughs> or one word or one further, you know, which would say something like, only this helps. You know, really everything else is just, you know, it's just a game. But what they really need is this diet, this meditation, this teacher, this exercise. Yeah? If they're serious, they're doing this. Everything else is just, you know, toy, toy stuff. We all know that, you know, we all have met people who often in the name of loyalty or consequence or decisiveness kind of go about doing one thing and preaching one thing which has been very useful for them, but the way they go about it, they really go religious, you know, they have sort of developed a messianic ego behind it. You know? So this is one form of attachment that the Buddha felt was, needs a lot of investigation. Ditti Upadana is a strong thing. The more you think, the more you have elaborate mental concept, the more likely it is you will have some of this. If you're not sure what the Ditti Upadana is, then think for a moment in a situation where you have just said something and it turns out this is completely and utterly wrong. Mm. You will notice the Upadana in there in your response to that, being proven completely and utterly wrong. Your resistance to admit that this is the case to yourself first, and then maybe even to others, that you are completely and utterly wrong. Your resistance against this is directly proportional to your degree of attachment to that particular view. Also, with Ditya Upadana, we have a tendency to identify with the view so that if this view is being disagreed with, we feel that we are being disagreed with, which is much harder to take. If it was really just my understanding of a thing that is out there, and now unfortunately there are some people out there who have managed to disprove or dislodge this, or undercut the premises on which my thing was built, but suddenly I feel they attacking me. They get at me. I'm being undermined here. My credibility is gone. My reputation is gone. You know, my whole system goes. And to the degree we attach to that thing, we feel under fire. We feel under threat. So, identifying with views is a very, very perilous thing. The next big area is uh, called the attachment to um, methods, ritual precepts to morality. The Pali term is silabata paramasa, silabata upadana, the grasping at something that is moral, that is has a ritual power, or that has a meth- 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 method, the power of a method or a technique 
something I do that makes me superior. When Diti Upadana is the sense of superiority that comes with knowing something, then the grasping at uh, Silavata is a feeling of I know what to do, I know the trick, I know the method to fix it, to help. So we all have obviously received help from different things, uh, practices, um, teachings. We have uh, undergone experiences and by doing this we have grown, we have learned. So any attachment to any of these methods as a liberating tool that this and this only will make us free, that this method, this teaching, this meditation technique will actually get us out of trouble is such a grasping, is considered such an attachment. The last one is a subform of the Ditti Upadana, of the grasping and views, and it is the identification with an aspect of experience as self. It is called Atta Vada Upadana and it says I am explicitly holding to an ideology that this is me. What I do, what I think, what I feel, what I want, this is me. It is an explicit statement, an ideology that claims that something that happens in my five aspects of experience, particularly my will function, or my feelings, or my cognitive understanding, including perceptions, this is me. And the refusal to investigate the very process of identification, this last one is, is a tricky one. Because there is a sense of me that is explicit. I say, oh, this is mine, yeah? We establish a sense of me through ownership. Um, we establish a sense of me through function and role. I am your mother. I know better. Or, you need me. You can't live without me. Um, so, I need you to need me. I need you to continue needing me. And if you show signs of independence, autonomy or so, I perceive that as a threat to my role and thus to my identity, if I have identified with that role. So this form of grasping is quite powerful. It has quite strong consequences. The Buddha says, what helps? You know, to, to be free of grasping, the Buddha uses the same term, upadana, in its negative, to describe somebody who is completely awake. He says, uh, one who is completely without grasping within the five aspects of experience is, is free. So this is the equivalent of awakening. How can, we, how can we, knowing about grasping, knowing about our habit, having our psychological needs, how can we learn to wean ourselves off forms of grasping? The first one, he said, is we have to investigate. The acknowledgement that there is pain is the entry path to investigating where that pain comes from. If we never go to the doctor by pretending it doesn't hurt, we can't be helped. 
all the knowledge of the doctor doesn't help. Because we just simply deny that it actually hurts. We deny that we are in need of help. We deny that we have symptoms. So the first step is acknowledgement that we have pain. Acknowledgement that grasping takes place. And then we begin to get interested in how that grasping takes place. How we actually doing it. If we can do it, we probably have a way of not doing it. But only when we figure out how we do it, we have a chance of figuring out not to do it. The second one, this is an interesting teaching. It says, you know, we don't stop grasping just because we're told. Whatever I'm going to tell you will not stop you from grasping. Even if you think this is smart or yes, this is plausible, this will not stop grasping anybody. I have no illusions, and the Buddha had no illusions about this. He said, it was very clear that we don't, that we won't stop grasping just because what he says is plausible or because he can prove that it hurts more than it does us good. He knows that the grasping habit is deeply, deeply ingrained in the human psyche and the only thing he felt was helpful was if we clearly weigh four things. That what we grasp at is arising that it arises and how it arises, to be more precise. And second one, that it ceases, that it goes down. That it goes down and how it goes down. If we do that of a thing, then we already have some power. As soon as a thing is acknowledged in its fluctuation, yeah? as soon as a thing is not persistent in its essence or in, in its being, as soon as a thing has a process, has conditions that make it stronger and make it weaker. We have an entry. Yeah? We can understand better how to influence the conditions. If it's nice and we want more of it, how we can strengthen it, reinforce it, foster it. If it's bad, how we can weaken it, how we can starve it, how we can gradually let it die down. As soon as we have this dynamic, the next two are less known. The third one is called the asada, the enjoyment, the gratification aspect of things. We need to weigh what we get out of a thing. And we need to, that's the fourth one, find out what its price is, what its danger is, what its cost is. So unless we're willing to admit that we get out something, and what this costs us, how much energy, how much pain, how much effort, how much sweat, Unless we actually manage to weigh these two things, we are unlikely to let go of something. We don't let go out of reason. We don't let go because somebody browbeats us into. We don't let go because we're told so. Um, we may pretend, but we don't literally let go. Yeah? So the only thing that helps us to really let go of something is by weighing whether it is more gratifying or whether it is more painful. Whether the cost it, we, we have to pay for it is really justified by the kick we get out of it. And when we do this, and only when we do this, we may become interested in getting out. We may become interested in the fifth one, which is called Nisarana, which is the, the exit. It's the, it's the way out. It's sober, isn't it? Interesting, the Buddha is very, very sober. Now, sometimes it's quite easy to, uh, 
or quick to point out the, the negative aspect of a thing. You know, I want to get rid of my anger. You know, anger is such a bad thing. It has bad press. It feels bad when it's happening. People who are close to me, they, they uh, pull, pull away from me when, I, when I'm angry. Yeah. You know, it's, it's easy to see the disadvantages of anger. It hurts. People take away their confidence. I feel isolated. Uh, I feel ashamed. It nibbles away at my self-respect. It doesn't work. Yeah. So there are many, things, many aspects of anger that are obviously harmful. So I would like to get rid of it. But if I don't admit what I get out of anger, yeah, I may not actually be interested in letting go. Maybe I get what I want when I get angry. Yeah, because suddenly I have power. Because they're afraid. Or I can browbeat them. Or I can threaten. Or I feel energy. And if I've not learned to feel energy other than being angry, it may be very attractive to be angry for me. Although it is bad taste, it has all the the declared disadvantages, I still will continue to get angry because it works. Yeah? It works. I get what I want. Has always worked. Since I threw myself down on the ground and threw a wobbly, still works 50 years later. <laughs> Why should I stop? Just because it's in bad press. So I wonder why my anger doesn't go away. So unless I admit to myself the kick, the gratification that comes with the thing, I am probably not likely to let go of something. So it's important to not just play the disadvantage of a thing. It's important particularly to acknowledge the advantage a thing has. The kick, a thing. What I get out of something. Unless I can weigh these two things, I am probably only, I only have half of the, uh, you know, not the bill, what's the word, I only have half of the calculation. It sounds like it should be clearly <laughs> weighted, stacked against, against anger, but still the, the advantages of anger remain hidden, and as long as that is the case, I will not be able to let go. Just as a little example. So, let me stop here. I hope to investigate more in practical details these forms of uh, grasping tomorrow um, with some questions, some sitting, some small exercises. And um, I'd like to, if you forget everything else from tonight, I would like you to not forget those four aspects that help understand the nature of letting go more deeply into this the investigation of the arising nature of something that besets us or that uh, that we feel enchanted by the aspect of ceasing of or going down of disappearing then particularly the aspect of gratification and the disadvantage for those of you who are interested in the Pali bit, the first one is Samudaya, the second one is Atangamana, the third one is Asada, and the fourth one is Adinava, the disadvantage or the danger in things. These four reflections are what the Buddha feels are most helpful to um, over, <coughs> overcome grasping and foster letting go. 
Good. Let me stop here and see whether there are any questions or whether we simply uh, do some more sitting. Yeah, please. Hi. Um, could you describe the kind of exercises you uh, will be doing tomorrow and, do any, and relay any, like, any way that a person can practice this in daily life? Why don't you come tomorrow? <laughs> I will um, try to flesh out some of those concepts psychologically a little more so that, they, that these patterns become more recognizable. And I will uh, hope to work with some questions uh, and pull, uh, pick your brains on uh, for part of the day. And the rest of the day will be sitting. Yes, please. Do you have some information? Do you have some reading material about these four aspects you would like to read before coming in tomorrow? Uh, there's a lovely book by Bhikkhu Tanisaro, um, Mind Like Fire Unbound. He uh, investigates the concepts of Upadana in there. Um, obviously, I would recommend some of the you know, go to the horse's mouth, read some of the Buddhist suttas. I'm happy to give you some pointers. This is a bit complicated right now. And I, uh, but I'm happy to give you some specific reading advice if you wanted to pursue that topic in the suttas. This particular Yeah? Please. Have you covered it in your Dharma Seed talks, this subject? I don't think, no. Yeah, don't think. Um, I may. I'll, I'll be teaching shortly uh, at the PCBS, and this topic will come up and will probably take a day or two. So there may be some talks from that. Yes, please. Yeah. Um, how do you differentiate? Let's take a, a very simple example. Water, or even craving a drink of water when we're thirsty, from these, what seems like a more addictive model, that the more we get, the more we want it, and it's ultimately destructive. But can you drink of water works? And to deny yourself that seems masochistic. Um, so, what? what it's lethal. Yeah. <laughs> it's worse than yes. that. Yeah. <laughs> Well, there is, there is need, yeah? And the differentiation between need and greed is, is part of practice. Um, it is maybe not one of the forte, uh, theoretical fortes of early Buddhism to have made that distinction very clearly. Um, there are many reasons for that. I don't, won't go into this, but you will have to find out what is the difference between need and greed in your own life. Nobody, however caring, however enlightened, can, can make that distinction for you. This will be part of your practice to figure out um, what is exactly a need and what is more than a need. The attempt to deny yourself need will always result in atrophy, in some form of atrophy. You, you will you will stultify your growth. We, we have needs on every level. And the attempt to uh, give up needs or let go of needs 
uh, is unhealthy. The distinguishing of what actually is a need and what is not a need <laughs> is, a tricky, is a tricky question. And it seems to take some time to actually sort that one out. Um, it has to be said that the Buddha, when he spoke, uh, addressed people who I have a feeling we're psychologically healthier than we are now. You know? <laughs> Obviously, this is a, um, you know, this is a hypothesis, and uh, it is as unenlightened as I am, but I have a sense that he spoke to people who he was confident that they knew how to develop a sense of purpose, how to love, and how to enjoy. And um, I don't think we can take that for granted nowadays. So there's a big question there. How do I distinguish needs? How do I not try secretly to let go of things I actually need to develop and learn to, you know, I wouldn't say pay my respects to, but pay my due? Well, one one word would be that if it makes matters worse, the problem that makes matters better than it Yeah. It's a good thing to do. Generally, that's, you know, what takes the first half of your life to figure it out. <laughs> we, we err on that one, isn't it? Um, I don't think there is an easy answer. It's very unhealthy to try not having needs. I could tell you as a psychotherapist a couple of things on this one. The attempt to deny oneself needs is a, a very well-documented tend to gain independence and to protect oneself and uh, the consequences of that are easily seen in people if you work with people like that. Uh, meditators are to some degree more prone to that type of temperament and maybe people who wouldn't find a natural uh, way to meditation. So this is something to keep an eye on. At the same time, we're also addicted to a lot of comforts. You know, we are more addicted to things that are not needs than we tend to admit. It would be, I would lie if I said, uh, we have a tendency to be normal about, <laughs> about needs. I don't think we have. Yeah. There's a lot of denial around the gratification we get out of sensuality. Because we live in a very sensuous world. We get encouragements on, on, on every billboard, you know, through forms of sensuality. And we often only found out our degree of investment and attachments to sensual comforts and gratification and pleasure when we challenge that. It's like swimming with the stream, you know, you never get an idea how much the current pulls unless you're actually turning against the current and try to at least stay on the same spot. Yeah. So as long as you kind of float, and you manage to have your sensory gratification, you can feel like quite, it's quite organic, it's quite normal, you're not a particularly sensuous or indulgent person. It feels quite normal, yeah, quote unquote. Only when you actually try to live on a very simple level or even uh, deprive yourself of certain things for a while, to, you find out to what degree your emotional or even your physical well-being hinges on them. 
I hope I answered to some yeah. question. Yeah, it's clarifying. Thank you. Please. So, um, I know the suffering, and I bet a lot of us here know the suffering of holding on to a political view. Mm -hmm. And yet, I, I sometimes thought, are we not supposed to have, I mean, it seems impossible not to have a political view, and yet there's a way, I imagine, of holding a political view that doesn't cause suffering, um, but I have no idea what that is. <laughs> well, you know, as long as you're going to hold on to something, it's, it's likely to cause some pain. But you may decide some, some things are worth holding on to. You, you're going to pay the price. Uh, you can't choose not. You, you can't opt out of grasping by reason or just by saying, okay, I just got burnt with this one. I just don't hold any views anymore. That sounds um, attractive, you know, but that's a view as well. <laughs> There's no easy way out of this. You, it's, it's about if you have to hold on to views, hold on to wholesome views. And hold on consciously. You will pay the price more easily when you have chosen to pay it than when you feel, you know, you've been taken for a ride. Or you never consciously made a choice and still it's going to cost you. Um, you may also find ways of holding this lot more lightly. You may find ways that you, you know, there's a kind of this type of holding, yeah? <laughs> this type of holding. <laughs> there's different ways of... is I think very common I would be surprised if you if you were alone with this um, you know I I've not given you all of the bad news tonight I've just spoken of one, <laughs> one little segment obviously Upadana has many many unhealthy friends you know <laughs> one, one of them is called uh, you know, kukucha, which means something like um, worry and anxiety. And you can, they do fantastic tango together. You know? <laughs> so, 
the one grasps beautifully, <laughs> and the other one makes incredible flourishes and swirl. <laughs> so, obviously, I think you've you've already spotted where you need to go. It is, is grasping is essentially a concept, and the major kick in there is some form of comfort that is enduring in time, and that needs leaving the present moment and construing, prolonging what you have experienced of into the future, which, which is a cognitive act. It hasn't actually happened, but you prolong this by a cognitive feat. Yeah. And anxiety uh, hinges on that what you are anxious about has not yet happened. It hinges on you anticipating or more apprehending a series of events based on what you have previously experienced has or might happen and you project that into the future. At the same time, you can't do anything about anxiety right now because the thing that you dread hasn't actually happened. That means you're in a continual state of helplessness. You get all the bad from anxiety, paralysis, bad feeling, preoccupation, frantic thinking, and you get none of the good because you can't even prepare by being anxious about something for what you're anxious about because it has never happened. So it's always in the future. So it leaves you always awash with uh, fears and the physiological corresponding unpleasant experience at the same time, it leaves you helpless. So you have already said what needs to be done, namely acknowledge present tense reality. Where do I sit? What do I... What can I be conscious of? Uh, what do I feel? What do I know? What can I actually act on? Just be patient. You know, the mind moves fast, and that is an advantage for some things, and it's a disadvantage for other things. But they can actually help each other, the mind and the body. So, by returning, particularly to bodily present tense, is, is helpful for a frantic mind. Not just yours, everybody's in here. Yeah. Yes, please. Thank you for your teachings. Um, my question is about how this plays out in collective dynamics, and in particular in spiritual communities, Buddhist spiritual communities, and dare I say, religious institutions. So, what you described um, very clearly, thank you, um, in terms of these processes were very much on the individual level, and then the, the antidotes, if I can call them loosely that. Um, I can perhaps get a sense of them on an individual level. My question is, how do we stay, how can we cultivate healthy spiritual communities which, um, you know, t together some of the darker sides of what you described around attachments to views, even right views, rites and rituals, can manifest in a really distressing way in group dynamics. And I was just wondering if either based on your knowledge of the scriptures or your own personal experience, how we can work with that collectively and, mm. and what practices might be helpful to, 
when there's this, there is this natural tendency to kind of gravitate in that direction, despite the you know, achievements of individual practitioners. I don't see that this can be done collectively unless it is done individually. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't trust collectives or indi- institutions. I, I trust individuals. It's not that I'm not part of institutions. I've, I've, I've learned a lot with institutions and communities and collectives, and I have a tremendous amount of gratitude for that. But, you know, individuals can grow. Institutions don't grow. Institutions can stay remarkably stupid, while individuals in that institution have undergone a tremendous amount of growth. Yeah. So... It needs personal responsibility, personal integrity, personal courage to stand to by what individuals know. (coughs) That's the only way I can tell you. I don't think that institutions or collectives can be better than the individuals (coughs) that inhabit them or that make them up. I guess it's a paradox because they also create the conditions for individuals to access the Dharma and practice. So. I know. Um, I'm not down on institutions. I just don't trust them. <laughs> you know, if you look at the history of Buddhism, you see a very delicate plant of contemplative life was within the lifetime of the Buddha given an institution, a monastic institution, what started off as a bunch of wandering monastic contemplatives by the end of the Buddha's lifetime, was uh, an institution. There were monks appointed to be the officers of building work in the monastery. That lets you know that obviously these monasteries have had enough substance to warrant an officer in charge of building work. What started off as a a group of wandering monastics or wandering mendicants has become a sedentary monastic institution within the lifetime of the Buddha, 45 years. Uh, if you read in the Visuddhimaka, you see the disadvantages of monasteries. You know, Too much children, too much building work, the king visits often. <laughs> you know, you, if you want an acknowledgement of the disadvantages of, of, say, institutional life, Buddhist tradition will tell you ample examples of this. At the same time, obviously, these institutions make things possible. They make possible that we sit here. You know, we sit here because for two and a half thousand years, people have fed monks and nuns, have printed books and palm leaves, and had have palm leaves inscribed and have worshipped in front of statues and stupas and have gone on pilgrimage and have found faith in these teachings. People we don't know, some of them may have been very conventional people. Not all meditators. <laughs> Some of them may have been corrupt. Uh, and yet, the collective result of this transmission is that we can sit here. Uh, and I am grateful for that. I don't see that there is an option to institutions. Individuals don't seem to hold transmissions together. They don't seem to create uh, source, uh, founts of learning at the same time, they need constant monitoring, constant maintenance, constant uh, checking, accountability, transparency, 
whom do I empower? What does he or she do with that power? Uh, and this is painful and hard labor. Continue, please. Yeah. Yes, please. If one were to um, succeed in in in, in uh, controlling the senses and endeavor to stay in the present all the time, if one were to succeed in that endeavor, do you think if one could avoid dukkha or or at least mitigate the effect of it to some extent? You can't really control senses. You know, you're a sensuous being. You're, the sensory nature of your experience makes you, um, to some degree, you have needs. So this you can't control. But by understanding the functioning of senses, by understanding need, and by being able to differentiate between need and indulgence, obviously you can minimize dukkha a lot. You can't get rid of all of the dukkha, because you're still, you're, you're born, and uh, part of the dukkha uh, is not just the dukkha we create on top of what's happening to us, but part of the dukkha is also pain, or the, the fact of having needs, or the fact of aging, or of, of losing people whom we care for. Uh, but you can minimize the dukkha. <coughs> to be honest with you, you know, even the Buddha had back pain. So, and he was completely awake. So, you probably still have back pain, but you probably don't think this is a problem anymore. <laughs> Does that make sense? Uh, I, I hear you. Yeah. <laughs> Good. Okay. Yeah, there's a... Um, to go back to your example of anger and the balancing test, weighing the benefit and then weighing the costs. What do you do if you have a habit, you know, like like anger, and you do that balancing test, you recognize that it's unwholesome, you recognize all the harm it's doing, but at the same time, it's just giving you too much, whatever twisted pleasure, for you to be willing to let it go. What do you what do you do at that point? Is it a question of focusing more on harm or just observing? Where do you go from there? Well, the first thing is you suffer, isn't it? Because the immediate consequence of this will be it continues and you will suffer. And to acknowledge the degree of suffering is what probably provides motivation for you to do less of it. Yeah. So you don't minimize, you don't pretend it's not hurting. If you're not sure about the value of something, you ascertain very clearly the negative aspects. You keep your mind on the actual experience of suffering because it's that experience of suffering which provides motivation for us to look more deeply into our own complicity, complicity with, with what we get pain from. If you become more aware of the suffering caused for yourself and for others, you're likely to be motivated to stop doing or at least decrease intensity. Also, 
On the other hand, you need, when you find out the gratification of what you get from this, you may find that there is other ways you can get that gratification. There's other ways to feel power rather than anger. Yeah. So you may need to tap into developing aspects of your psychological life uh, that you have neglected. So it's one thing is acknowledging the depth of suffering that comes from your actions, and the other thing is to see if this is what I'm after. Is there another way I can get that? Is there another way I can feel that same aliveness? The crucial thing is your curiosity and your willingness to go there, bear with the pain and investigate. If you're asking me this question, it has already started, you know, it's... (laughs) Good luck. (laughs) Let us sit for a few more minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.